Hello, and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a podcast about energy, climate, and environmental issues by young people for all people. I'm Kelly Jang, and I randomly decided to do the intro this week, and I'll hand it over to Evan to actually introduce the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) To the surprise of us all. Wow, yeah. (laughs) Keeping me on my toes, Kelly. Uh, Hello, and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people for all people. It just wouldn't feel right if I wasn't saying it in that ridiculous tone of voice. Hello, guys. Um, It's our second week back, and uh, I just wanted to gauge, how are you guys feeling about that first episode? Steve, you want to start? Oh, yeah. Um, I thought it was fun. Um, Having the live aspect of it really, like, keeps us on our toes, I feel like, and, like, raises the bar. Uh, Feel the pressure and, you know, kind of makes you perform a little better. I had fun with it, and I think I'm just kind of resolving to have a little bit more fun with this in general. And I know I want to keep the educational bit there, but I also, like, you know, want it to be something I look forward to. Um, so, yeah, it was fun. Thanks for showing up, uh, all, all the all the fans. <laughs> yeah, Kelly, how did it feel to perform our podcast in front of all those adoring fans? Yeah, it was really fun, actually. I liked um, the live question aspect of it. It kind of kept things interesting, and it was a lot more engaging than just us talking to each other. So that was really fun. Um, and I hope that we can do some more live shows in the future. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to do more live shows. So if you guys are interested in that, feel free to reach out to us. Um, but for this week, it's going to be a little less lighthearted and fun this week because we're talking about what's going on in Texas with their power grid failures. Basically, if you haven't been reading the news on Twitter or anywhere in the past couple weeks, Texas is experiencing rolling blackouts because uh, northern Texas and most of Texas is experiencing below freezing temperatures. And this has caused massive failures in all of Texas' power grid. People have no access to natural gas power, electrical power, um, and in best-case scenarios, it's been a major inconvenience for people. In worst-case scenarios, it's led to some major humanitarian crises. Uh, This includes uh, being homeless, essentially being a death sentence these days. Even people living in homes are experiencing 40 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures in the comfort of their own homes. Um, We've seen apartment buildings caught on fire and firefighters aren't even able to put them out because there's no access to running water right now. 911 has been unreachable. The issues plaguing Texas right now are endless. So So first and foremost, we wanted to, um, in discussing and planning for this episode, we wanted to cut through some of the noise. Um that we are hearing out there um, and really try to get to the facts as best as we can see it. Um, so just keep that in mind. That is our efforts for, for this episode. Um, so you, you've heard a lot about this polar vortex and we've seen a lot of climate groups and um, you know groups that we ourselves um, usually are part of talk about the polar vortex being part of climate, climate change and, and um, you know, the polar, what's the word, polar wobbly polar vortex coming down from the North Pole due to um, warm air currents going up to the north. Um, so while this is a growing body of evidence that this is a theory for how this, that this describes what's going on, that has not been fully established yet. Um, so really, um, it's on average, you know, global warming and climate change is going to make things on average, get warmer and hotter. Um, but, um, yeah, in this case, we, we are seeing an extremely severe winter event 
which is still going to happen. There are still going to be anomalies as on average we get warmer. Um, again, the um, polar vortex is essentially a low pressure system of cold air that typically stays at the poles. However, um, something, something, something occasionally will push it out of its place, um, a combination of random air currents and climate change perhaps, um, and push the cold air um, southward over the U.S. into the Midwest and resulting in the freezing cold that we've seen. Texas and Oklahoma were colder than even some parts of Alaska, which is crazy to think about. Um, so this is not something that is um, totally unprecedented, however, and something similar happened in Texas in the 1980s. So this might be something about a one in 40 year event or something like that. Um, and we don't know how much more common it will be in the future. It might be that climate change does in end up making this more frequent. So maybe one every 30 years, maybe one every 20 years, or maybe you know, one every five years. Um, we don't know. So there's uncertainty in the models right now. And we um, just want to make that point clear. So the polar vortex, I th at first I actually thought it was just a media term. Remember, there's the bomb cyclone thing. But apparently the uh, polar vortex is actually a thing. And it's this mass of cold air over the poles that sometimes moves south, um, wreaking havoc over Texas. And also, um, there's been a lot of extreme cold in Europe recently as well. And crazy, crazily enough, there are winter storm warnings in every county in Texas. So even think about it, like there's snow falling in Mexico too. Um, so that's pretty crazy. Back to um, the topic of this podcast, which is um, the failure of the electricity system. Um, a quick refresher, Texas has its own power grid called ERCOT, which stands for the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas. Now the R is kind of dubious these days. <laughs> but basically, Texas pretty much operates its own power grid. And because the power typically doesn't cross state lines, it's not under the jurisdiction of FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And so it's all kept in state. And so this is why you see things like former governor of Texas and former secretary of energy, Rick Perry, saying, it's okay in Texas. We're fine with the power outages. We don't want the feds to get involved, which... I, uh, maybe you're just speaking for yourself. Maybe he has a generator at home, and so he's fine with power outages, but I think most people would be okay with federal intervention if it meant that they could uh, not freeze to death. So basically, um, Texas is its own grid, and so some people have been blaming that for the reason that there have been blackouts, because so much electricity generation has failed in Texas, but Texas has been unable to import power from other grid regions. Their grid ties are limited to about 600 megawatts from each the east and the west. They also have a small transmission line connecting them to Mexico. However, even if in this case, even if the um, um, the transmission lines had been uh, had had more capacity, it probably wouldn't have helped in this scenario because these other grid regions were also dealing with their own generation shortfalls. And there were some rolling blackouts in Ohio as well, not to the extent of Texas. In Texas, it wasn't even rolling blackouts because they lacked so much electricity generation tripped offline that they had to turn off every circuit that wasn't critical infrastructure. So they weren't even able to do the rolling blackouts. But I mean, if they hadn't shed the load, then what would have happened is that probably the entire grid would have gone down and then restarting the grid from... Um, it's called black start that would have been significantly more difficult and we would probably have had like way worse um, outages that lasted for po possibly even like weeks um, another thing to note oh Evan were you gonna say something yeah I think you were about to get into it but I just I wanted to pose this because 
I know we try to stay out of partisan issues on this podcast, and it also, from the little amount of research I have done on this subject, it seems like this is an issue that's plaguing most of America, not just Texas. But when you look at the political leadership in Texas, it's hard not to cast some of the blame to them. Especially, I mean, when you see the statements that Ted Cruz and Governor Abbott are making about wind energy being to blame, when that seems to be a gross mischaracterization of where the blame should be cast to. And also when you see Ted Cruz literally fleeing the country. But that's another story. So what do you guys think about making this a political issue? Are the politicians to blame? So I would say in this case... The main issue is not any specific generation source. So actually, um, during the peak winter loads, ERCOT was expecting that most of the demand would be met by natural gas. They expected that wind and solar would not really make that much of a contribution, but they ac- wind and solar actually delivered more than ERCOT had been expecting, which is good. However, gas really dropped the ball on this one. Um, about half of all the gas plants were offline and unavailable. And this is due to a combination of things like the tur- maybe the turbines themselves weren't winterized. But a bigger issue was actually the tr- pipeline transmission infrastructure. Like they were not meant to deal with, um, they, they weren't designed to deal with the winter cold. And this is something that, um, so there was actually another big storm in Texas in 2011 and NERC, the NASH, North American Electricity Reliability Council, I believe. So they're like, okay, you guys got to do some winterization. Texas didn't listen. And then predictable results followed. And I think this potentially could be blamed on um, politicians that didn't, that potentially like didn't um, pass a bill to force uh, the power plants to winterize. You could also potentially blame caught the power market for not forcing the generators to winterize. But again, I'm not 100% sure if ERCOT themselves actually have the ability to force the generators to winterize to do anything because they're just the market operator. They're just like, okay, like we control the marketplace where you can sell your energy. And so I think this is something where now that this horrible thing has happened, there might be some incentive for um, changes to actually be made to make the grid more resilient. But it's it's definitely a really tricky situation. I, I think um, it's not as simple as saying like, ah, oh, yes, gas failed, or ah, oh, yes, like wind failed. It's It's more of a question of resilience. And it's also pretty interesting to think about, um, so back in 2017, I believe, when there was the first polar vortex and... Um, a lot of uh, power plants went offline in the Northeast. There was this proceeding at FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, about quote-unquote resilience, where they're like, ah, yes, because it's so cold, we're going to need fuel security and coal plants to supply this um, energy when it gets cold. But then, like, the piles of coal froze. And same with gas here. Like, the gas pipelines froze. And so even though the generators, if they could be running, they would have been making a killing. But they just there was just no gas. And so they couldn't run. And so this is a much bigger problem than just how the electricity market is designed. It's like, it would be a perfect market if, you know, the transmission infrastructure worked, but then how do you capture that in the market design? You can't. I want to circle back to that point about the, it really is a systems engineering and energy problem and an engineering problem really than a political one. But um, that's not what we see, you know? Um, I think there's a great Winston Churchill quote that says, 
um, never, never let a good crisis go to waste or something like that. And we see both sides of the political aisle that are employing that quote right now. Um, you see, the first thing that I saw was uh, people from the right saying, this is why a Green New Deal can't happen. And I was just like, wait, how is this? <laughs> I just, what? How is this Green New Deal? And I saw people from the right, uh, from the left saying, oh, this is, you know, subtweeting a, a Ted Cruz quote that said, like, look at California. This is what happens when, you know, uh, a state is run by liberals and they, they can't keep their electricity on, essentially. Um, and I think that's a, that's a prescient point because you can very easily draw parallels to California, California's fire seasons, you know? Public safety power shutoffs caused by natural disasters, people dying, massive infrastructure failure, um, billions of dollars in, uh, wasted, um, just a, a natural emergency disaster, right? However, in California, we had a clear antagonist um, that came out. At the end of the day, they actually pled guilty to you know, being responsible. It was PG&E, uh, the utility. Um, it essentially was criminally negligent utility maintenance that caused fires in the past three years, um, going on three years. Let's see how 2021 goes. Um, but here, it's interesting because, in our opinion, there's not really one person to blame or one entity to blame either. Um, the, the politicians can talk a mean game, but they're not going to be the ones, you know, fixing the power poles or, or talking about complex energy, you know, regulatory matters. So this is um, this can be viewed essentially as just like weather risk or potentially even climate risk. Um, so we, I want to dive a little bit into the nuts and bolts here. Um, so in total, the there were 30 gigawatts of outages. This is 30 gigawatts is 30,000 megawatts of outages. Um, and there just literally were not, there was not enough energy to be turned on, even if the price of energy was, let's say, infinite, or let's say we'll pay you a million dollars if you turn on your, your gas plant. They just, they looked around, they saw that we have no gas to burn. Okay, let me, Evan, please cross off the 30 gigawatts thing, because that's wrong, actually. I don't know, there's too many notes in there. Yeah, get rid of the 30 part. But, so out of the 70 gigawatts of thermal plants in ERCOT, um, 25 to 30, oh, actually, I was right, never mind. <laughs> so never mind. Out of the 70 gigawatts of thermal plants in ERCOT, 25 to 30 gigawatts of those have been out since Sunday. This is um, as of the time that I wrote this. Um, so it might not be correct the time that you listen to this. And this has been due to um, natural gas, nuclear, and coal plants. They've just been failing in the extreme cold. Um, ERCOT in the past has modeled its most extreme, extreme winter peak load to cause about 15 gigawatts of thermal outages, and we're seeing about 25 to 30 right now. So it's almost double. Essentially, this is double the amount of failure that they've modeled and even their worst case scenario. Um, so that's one very strong point that needs to stand out. Um, and um, wind, on the other hand, you know, the wind that people have been pointing fingers at, wind energy has only been, um, wind produced about four gigawatts, um, sorry, wind outages produced about four gigawatts of the outages of the planned six gigawatts that Texas relied on and planned. So yes, wind, wind energy did fail, about, four, about two thirds of it, but it's only been four out of six as opposed to 31 gigawatts of thermal capacity. So it is a part of the story, it's definitely part of the solar story that solar and wind underperformed, but this, this was an underperformance across the board um, so we need to get out of our energy tribal camps here about like, oh, fossil fuels, you know, renewables. And this is really system wide has been a poor planning on energy in general. Um, and but then the question still lies, like, is this something that we should be planning for at all times? If this is something that's going to happen once every 40 years, 
Is it something that we want to be prepared for every single year? Um, a lot of people, you know, your gut reaction might say like, yes, you always want to be prepared, but there are economic costs to all, all preparations. You know, this is not a common narrative to hear right after an emergency disaster, you know, for someone to be saying, should we be preparing for this? But it's something that we should be thinking about after, after this is done, um, what will be happening after the fact, you know, there's going, you know, there's going to be some, um, policies pulled or some, some new, um, levers pulled after this, um, I want to make sure personally that it's being done even-handedly and, and rationally and, and cool-headed. Yeah, and I think actually there's going to be uh, a lot of the damage is actually going to be caused by like pipes freezing and bursting. So I think in terms, if we're talking about like property damage that's going to be happening as a result of this electricity shutdown, I think it's going to be huge. And there's some idle speculation, like maybe some of the insurance companies who are going to have to be paying out for this, could they sue ERCOT for saying you were criminally negligent in, turning, in shutting off the power, making all these pipes burst and resulting in all this property damage that we now have to pay for? I don't think so because insurance, I don't think the insurance companies are really going to be able to make that argument in court and they usually don't do stuff like that. But I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about. And... So I think if if we really tally up all the costs of this, I think it's going to be high enough to justify investing in like oh, putting some insulation on the pipelines and stuff like that. And I think this also is going to show that um, in Texas, they're going to start having to plan for cold weather. In the Northeast, they actually already plan for the fact that, oh, actually, like when it's really cold, a lot of the natural gas just goes to heat people's homes. And so power plants have to be ready for that. To, to all the viewers at home that think I don't do my research... Little do you know, I watched a TikTok today on the matter. So it was a TikTok that scared the absolute crap oh, out of me. Is that a good word? <laughs> scared, scared the absolute heck out of me. And you watch yourself. And <laughs> it was basically talking about like what uh, the possibility of like a nationwide power outage that would kill 90% of the U.S. population. But let's not focus on that right now. <laughs> Instead, I wanted to focus on a part of it that was basically saying that these um, these utilities like ERCOT or like PG&E, they don't make changes, the necessary changes, until there's this major disaster. And I want to, like, you're saying, like, oh, like, because of this, they might, like, insulate their pipes. But is that enough? Especially if this could happen in any state in America, shouldn't we be preparing for this everywhere before the disaster, before lives are at stake? I think that is, yeah. I think that, can I say something real quick, Kelly? Is like, I think, yes, we should in general be making our grid more resilient and modern overall. Like that is 100% what we should be doing, both in terms of extreme cold and extreme heat. That's something that we've been saying that Kelly and I, and, and on this podcast, we've been saying since day one. But this event on its own is, I guess it's just, maybe it's just a wake-up call, but it's not like something that we shouldn't be like planning for this extreme of a winter event every like 10 years, I would say. Yeah. And to clarify, ERCOT is not a utility. They're actually the grid operator, but there's always the experts who are like, oh, we need to be preparing for this stuff. We got to be preparing for this stuff. Like the climate crisis, there's going to be some stuff happening. And actually there was a bill proposed in the Texas legislature five years ago that um, a lot of state agencies have to take climate risk into account when they're planning for stuff did not pass the legislature. A lot of Republicans voted against it. And the, um, I think, state senator or state representative who proposed the bill is reintroducing it. So hopefully it goes through this time. So it's uh, it's not great. And I think, you know, the, uh, the saying, um, 
an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you're prepared for these things, you can, I mean, the cost of avoiding a crisis typically is less than the cost of dealing with the after effects of the actual crisis. And this, I mean, I think this one is the Texas um, cold snap, I feel like is more of like a freak of nature event than wildfires in California, which are just like so predictable. Um, so I think maybe the blame on the utilities in this case might at the end of the day be slightly less, but it still goes to show that we really need to be thinking long-term and like, oh, we should be making these investments. And by the way, making investments also means creating jobs because there's going to be people who need to go out there and insulate the pipelines. That's a good way to create a job. And um, a lot of, potentially that could even be part of the stimulus package, you know? Paying for upgrading our nation's electrical infrastructure, which is super old. That's something that is part of, you know, that's something that um, could be included as part of a Green New Deal or Biden Green Deal or Green Real Deal or whatever. But ultimately, we really need to be um, spending the money to improve our infrastructure because if we don't, more stuff like this is going to be happening everywhere. What's that? What's that noise I hear? Well, the ever-changing theme song insinuates that it's time for our brand new segment, Cap and Trade, our market-based approach to our own feelings. Joining us today is a special guest on the Cap and Trade segment. Uh, special guest, are, are you are you ready to reveal what your Cap and Trade is? Hello, it is me, Senator Ted Cruz. This week, I'd like to thank the the Renewable Generation for having me on the podcast. And this week, I'd like to cap the people of Texas and trade them for a god-darned margarita on a white sandy beach of Cancun, Mexico. Oh, wait, oh, never mind, sorry, um, you didn't hear that from me. Um, it was my daughters, uh, they, 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 you see, they pressured me. If it weren't for them, I wouldn't be out here. I would be at home in the cold with you, my fellow constituents. But I couldn't let them down. I'm the, I'm a family man. I'm a father figure. I, I'm, but here, I am here for you first and foremost, my dear constituents, in this historic emergency. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Ted Cruz, for joining us today. Um, I'm not sure I agree with your captain trade, but uh, thanks for g- giving your opinion. I think we have another caller, actually. Is that another guest? Hey, this is Heidi Cruz calling. So I'm capping fake friends who send screenshots of group texts to packs that are opposed to my husband's re-election. I mean, when before in human history was this level of pettiness even possible? It was not. Welcome to the Roaring Twenties, everyone. Anyway, I'm trading group texts for disappearing messages, especially on the app Signal, because I care a lot about civil liberties and personal privacy. And also Elon Musk told everyone to use Signal. Um, Yeah. And also, I need to have a chat with my husband about disciplining your children. Because honestly, if your kids want to take a last minute vacation, it's your responsibility as a parent to talk some sense into them. Hey, don't talk to the husband like that. 
Okay, well, thank you, Ted and Heidi Cruz, for joining us today. Uh, that was certainly a bizarre interruption. And wait, I I think is that oh, we have another caller. Who who could this be? Hi, my name is uh, Ted Cruz's daughter, <laughs> and I'd like to cap my fifth grade education to get absolutely sloshed in Cancun. Again, spring break. Yeah, it's no way to talk to your father. <laughs> Screw you, Dad. You're a fake Texan anyway. Well, this is certainly taking a turn for the worse. Uh, the Cruz family, uh, God bless you, but I, I hope you shape up uh, real fast because our country needs leaders, and right now, uh, you're not really, <laughs> you're not exemplifying that. Then uh, you heard it. You heard it here first from the Renewable Generation podcast. Well, uh, so obviously our present day leaders are not doing much to solve the current situation in Texas. But what could happen in the future? What could the future of the grid look like? Kelly? Yeah, so um, when we're talking about political leadership, actually, one person I would like to give a shout out to is former candidate for Senate against Ted Cruz, Beto O'Rourke. He's actually been using his platform and army of volunteers to make calls and get um, aid to people in the state of Texas who are struggling. So um, linking them up with resources, water, food, um, supplies, stuff like that. He's been doing that. He's not even a senator. He's a private citizen. Where's the actual senator? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so um, one of the things that could potentially, that some people could start doing is investing more in, let's say, their own solar plus storage systems. I actually read this article in the Wall Street Journal that said this guy, lifelong Republican, he's been proud to, that oil and gas have been powering Texas, but he's like, I think I'm going to get some solar panels because if this happens again, even if the solar panels don't produce that much in the winter, it's better than nothing. Um, so having more distributed energy resources... Um, is definitely going to be a thing that happens. Although another thing that might start happening is that people, I think a lot of people are going to go out and buy generators. So that's not great for the uh, climate, um, diesel or natural gas generators, but it does provide a level of resiliency. <coughs> um, and another thing we need to do is just upgrade our infrastructure and weatherize it you know, protect the pipelines from freezing. Actually take that into account. Even if you're in a place that doesn't normally get cold, make your infrastructure more resilient. Steven's going to talk about something with an acronym, uh, a very famous acronym. There's some holes in this house. 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 That's right. I'm talking about the Weatherized Assistance Program, or WAP for short. So... There's a, as you all are very aware of the famous acronym WAP, um, WAP really stands for energy efficiency. Um, it stands for um, upgrading your homes and making sure that they are, um, you know, well insulated. So they're not leaking energy um, in or out um, on hot or cold days. Um, and it really should always be the first step. It's, it's very cost effective. And um, the weather, uh, let me mention that the Weather as Assistance Program is a public service that is um, offered in many places in the United States. Um, that song that I just sang um, was from a viral moment from this, I think this guy from Milwaukee, he's like a public clerk, and he was trying to, you know, raise awareness about Weather as Assistance Program. So he uh, put out a meme 
that talk about this and he got in trouble. <laughs> so he had to like delete it and take it down, but it went viral. So, you know, maybe achieved its goals. Um, but that really is the point that we're, that I think we're trying to make here as in the podcast is that, you know, all the political, um, and noise, you know, like the finger pointing and the blaming that for the most part is not going to be productive. Um, what we really need to do is really invest in like these, these ground up solutions. So like you, I would urge you as an individual and you and your family, like take care of your own shit, (laughs) to be honest, like take care of your own shit and don't rely on like the government or some higher like body to take care of you because it's not really going to happen. You sound like a Texan. Hey man, I'm just, I'm Senator Ted Cruz. No, I'm not. But, um, (laughs) all I'm saying is that, you know, you have to get real about these risks and um, deal with them yourself. So while I also like hate to see those generators being bought, I would prefer them to be solar and storage. Like I also can't blame them for one second. You know, I would do the same thing if I were in their shoes. I want to make sure that my house is warm, that I have, you know, electricity. I can keep like my grandma warm, keep my dog like, you know, fed, you know, I, I want to make sure that my shit is all together. And I'm, I would not rely on the government to do that for me. I'm confused about why you are advocating for the weatherization assistance program, which is a program funded by the Department of Energy from the federal government. And then in the same breath, telling people you can't rely on the government. <laughs> I would say, yeah, that's fair. I would say that you take what you can get. So you take what you can get. I'm, I'm talking extremely practically here. I'm saying you take what you can get. <laughs> I, think, I, I think at least at this point, it's, we should be encouraging, um, I guess like to the extent that we influence our listeners, right? Like people don't necessarily have to listen to me, but I think right now is the time to actually demand more of the government. Like, hey, this is something that actually individual people can't necessarily do because actually if we're going to be going the route of like solar storage or generators, rich people are going to be able to afford it. So my colleague said he has a neighbor who has a very nice and fancy natural gas um, generator system that costs twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars. Low-income people can't afford that. What? And if we have this, like, oh, all the rich people can have their off-grid energy generation system, but then all the poor people are still connected to the grid. That is not a solution. That's not environmentally just at all. And so, what we need right now is to actually improve our public infrastructure, weatherize the grid, weatherize pipelines, transmission lines, power plants. Maybe like the power, the wind turbines in Texas should have heating elements in the blades, like the ones in New York do. I I 100% agree with you, Kelly. That we we should, and I will continue to pressure the government and our elected officials and hold them accountable. And at the same time, I'm not taking my chances with them. I'm putting my own trust in myself and my close group of friends. Like I I 100% agree. I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that we should we should not put the pressure on the government because they it's up to them to solve these problems our leaders, right? Quote unquote leaders. But at the end of the day, didn't you say they're not going to solve the problem? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a pessimist about it, to be honest. Um, I think that, that they have the power to make the broad sweeping solutions. And I agree that it's not environmentally just to leave it to the citizens, but I also, I'm not, if I'm a betting man, which I am, I am not putting my money on the government to solve the issue. Yeah, and I mean, I think what Steve is saying is fair because this whole conversation, not just uh, about the government, but even about these utilities and these uh, power grid 
Um, what is Urkot against? <laughs> Urkot, oh, uh, grid operator. Even these power grid operators, like, we're saying, like, oh, the solution is for them to, like, rehabilitate their power lines and to, like, insulate pipes and, like, do these things to, like, modernize their, uh, their, uh, their power grids. But do we think they're going to do these things? Like, do we think, like, every state is suddenly just going to, like, revolutionize the way, like, the power grids have been the last 50, 60 years? I mean, they haven't modernized anything since, like, the 50s or 60s. And now we suddenly think, like, oh, everything's going to change because uh, something happened in Texas. When things have been happening, like, California's been on fire for the past 10 years. Nothing's changed. It's like, yeah, I think what I'm saying is hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Like, do both. You know, like, if I'm in California, I'm going to keep holding my my government accountable and keep pressuring them to solve things. At the same time, I'm going to have a box of N95s and a go bag and emergency supplies in my car ready to go. I want to be prepared for both. And I want to push for those solutions. Environmental justice is a huge concern of mine, but I am kind of a pessimist that it's actually going to get done, to be honest. Um, We've wasted so much time. Um, We're 2021 now. We have... 29 years left to get to net zero carbon emissions. So clock is ticking, you know? Yeah, I'm... Oh, okay. We can we can just end there. Well, no, I don't know if we want to end it on the most negative note. I'm just... <laughs> dark. I'm literally, like, hunkered down, like, become, like, uh, what's it called? Like a bunker person. Are you going to build your own bunker, Steve? Is that where this is going? I'm... I am fully prepared to do that. I'm going to keep monitoring the situation. It's not quite there yet, and I also am not, don't have the means to do that. I'm a poor-ass mother <laughs> effort. But I just, like, I, at the same time that I believe in this, in this fight and I'm working my ass off to create these solutions, like, we've just wasted so much time, you know? I'm, it's a sad fact, and I'm hopeful. We definitely have momentum right now, but it's a, this is a 29-year fight and beyond, so... I don't know, unless we see some real legitimate, like, large-scale change in attitudes in, in, the, in the United States and in the world, like, we're not going to get the job done. I do. I, I agree people should be motivated to take their own personal actions in, like, do whatever they can. I mean, I, uh, a couple weeks ago, I bought an earthquake bag uh, for California. So any, any California residents, that's my, my advice. Buy an earthquake bag. They've got uh, rations got uh, tools, uh, anything you'd need to survive for like a couple weeks to a month. <laughs> this is becoming like a doomsday prepper. Yeah. <laughs> get your ham radio. Get your well, just think about it, right? There's, I, there's probably a lot of preppers in Texas who have like pickup trucks, a lot of guns. They can't leave their house in their pickup trucks because they don't have snow tires. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, no matter how much you prepare, sometimes you just don't prepare for that one thing. Well, on a more uh, bright side of things, uh, it's time for the segment that is co-sponsored by both AOC and Ed Markey. Shout out, Ed Markey. Uh, Massachusetts gang, unite. It's the Green New Spiel. Uh, Steve, you want to start out with yours? Um, this week for the Green New Spiel, I would like to shout out my homeboy, Bill Gates, um, who can jump over a chair. If you haven't seen that, look it up. Um, so Bill Gates, he had a book. Who he just put out a book called "How to Avoid a Climate Disaster," 
Um, it's really, um, I haven't read it, by the way, but I, I think it's out, it's out, and I, it's on my list that I really want to read, um, and he also has a 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper, that's only about 20 minutes, so what the hell's up with that, um, and it's really interesting, he, 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 um, Bill Gates, as you know, is a very strong technocrat, he believes in techn- technological solutions, which many have criticized him for his view on climate change, being very isolated and not taking into account politics at all, um, I think that's a fair criticism, and he's just so much of a nerd that I don't think he'll ever really leave that ivory tower of his. But that being said, he's, he's focusing, he himself has, has united with many of the world's billionaires, including Jeff Bezos, Jack Ma, um, and others from around the world. And it's called a, a fund called um, the Breakthrough Energy Fund. And they are funding essentially like moonshot technological solutions that if someone can, some crazy scientist can crack the code on like extremely efficient and cheap nuclear fission reactors, like, they're the ones backing that. Fusion, no, fission, actually, too. Yeah, both, fission and fusion, they're doing both. Yeah, um, and as well as carbon capture, as well as, you know, a new new generation, um, what's it called, um, hydro, hydroelectric plants. Um, so yeah, I just wanna give a shout out to that. Um, check out the 60 Minutes interview, it's pretty interesting, um, and, yeah, I do think I do think that he is a technocrat, and he also is missing the entire political side of things, and like the the collaboration side of like getting you know um, the entire world to collaborate on this. But he does frame things as a world war in the same way that we've been talking about a World War Two level mobilization. He's saying this is the hardest thing that human humans have ever had to face in history, and likely will ever have to face going forward. And we need to treat it as such, treat it as a world war. Yeah, maybe we could delve into this on a different day, but I, I heard Bill Gates is urging people to eat 100% synthetic beef and meat. Um, I, th- I think that would be an interesting conversation for another time. But right now, it's time for Kelly's Green News Spiel. Cool. So the day that we're recording this, Friday, um, February 19th, the U.S. officially rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. So that's the great news. Um, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord was largely a symbolic move by the Trump administration, basically giving the middle finger to the rest of the world, saying we won't cooperate with you on anything. So it's good to see that the U.S. is back. Um, and Biden's team is hopeful that this is a great opportunity for the U.S. to um, reassert our leadership in this space, because in the meantime, it hasn't been like there's been one country that's come along and been like, OK, we're like making we're unifying everyone in favor of climate action. Some people at some point thought that China was going to do that, um, but they're still doing a lot of financing of coal plants abroad, probably fudging their emission statistics a little bit. And so hopefully now the U.S., I mean, the Paris Agreement is basically just a promise to um, implement domestic climate policy. And so it's largely symbolic, but it's kind of a sign that the U.S. is actually serious about this and trusting science again. So it's positive news. Well, thank you, Kelly and Steve, for your green news spiels. And with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. Thanks, as always, for joining us today on The Renewable Generation. We will be back bi-weekly. Uh, we do bi-weekly episodes now, so two weeks from now, which should be the first week of March. We'll be back in your, your lovely little eardrums. I'm going to cut that. That was weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and feel free to follow us if you like our content. We are at Gen Renew Pod on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, well, that's about it. Uh, we don't have an Instagram. Um, so, yeah, check us out. Bye. Bye.